If you happen to miss Deion Sanders introducing himself to his new players at the University of Colorado the other day, do me a favor and go check it out on YouTube. Because if I'm being honest, it's everything I fucking hate about big-time college sports. In short, in a time period where, just as an example, thousands upon thousands are dying in Ukraine, Dion says God is using him as a messenger and wants him coaching football. In a time where the earth is heating at unsustainable rates, Dion was flown to Boulder via private jet. Dion told the returning Buffaloes that they should consider transferring. He told them that hurt players were shit out of luck. Oh, and his commitment to Jackson State and HBCUs, the one he swore by, eh, it's over. And don't mind if he takes a bunch of his players with him. Just being blunt, from Nick Saban and Dabo Swinney to Lane Kiffin and Deion Sanders, I'm so over this shit. You're not fucking kings. You're not gods. You're all very fortunate that somewhere along the line, this inane game was created with an oddly shaped ball and enough physical brutality that many of your players are guaranteed ugly futures with limps and CTE. It's all fucking bullshit. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Timothy Bella, the Washington Post staff writer, daddy of Teddy, and author of the fantastic new book, Barkley, a biography. This is episode number 288. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Tim, you're sitting there with Teddy, your son. He's eight and a half months. Does he look at me? I look at, at you with wider eyes these days in the month since your book came out. I think as long as I read him any book, period, Jeff, he is a super impressed by it. Uh, so he does keep staring at mine, but he also keeps staring at like a goodnight moon, too. So. I, th- I think he's impressed, but I will task him again uh, in a few years. <laughs> That's fair. Um, here's what I'm interested in. You're basically a month removed from the premiere of your first book, Barkley, a biography. And a question I ask myself all the time that I will ask you, is the payoff worth it? Like, has the month since the book came out, has it lived up to what you thought a book release would be? Or is it like, oh, is that it? It's a great question. And I would say in the first couple weeks, it was really run and gun, just trying to get on as many shows as possible, trying to just make myself as available as possible. In my spot, it's a bit different in that with Teddy and, and with me still being on attorney leave from the Washington Post, he is my first responsibility. It's like my first responsibility is raising his uh, small person there. So it has been a real juggling act. And I will say, overall, I do think it is worth it. I did take your advice and just kind of reach out to people on my own just because I had a really good publicist. I, I think the absolute world of him. But I agree with you on some of these things. They want to hear from the author themselves. And I feel like I probably should have done that a little earlier in the actual process. But overall, I've been really happy with it. I do think I've got this book writing bug now and that eventually I will do more books. But yeah, it's been a whirlwind month though. 
we were writing these biographies at the same time and we dm'd several times because both our subjects bo jackson and charles barkley are auburn produced products alabama produced products and we also share the commonality of our subject matters not being aggressively or in your case at all against that we were doing it but not oh. being particularly helpful so writing a charles barkley book as he's a nationally prominent figure without the help of charles barkley how big of a hindrance was that or was it a hindrance at all in some ways jeff it was a lot easier without chuck on board just because in charles's case he said so many things over the course of his four decades as a public figure ever since he was planted at Auburn, that there was a ton to pull from in terms of if the archives, old podcasts, old TV and radio interviews. And for me, it really was interesting just kind of digging into it without Charles fully on board. For for the record, I did preach out to him and his agent, Mark, before I interviewed a single person for this, had a really good conversation with his agent about what the actual book would be, even gave them an 81-page outline, chapter by chapter of the exact book, which actually turned out to be the book itself. And and they ultimately said no. And then I uh, interviewed hundreds of people. And uh, later on in the actual process, a few people in Charles's inner circle actually got back to me and said, you know, you really wore Charles down during this whole process here. I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. I just want to tell the best possible story, the most comprehensive story of this basketball legend, broadcasting pioneer and pop culture icon that hasn't happened yet. So I do think there was some level of respect as uh, this process went on. But yeah, in some ways, it was easier without Chuck on board, Jeff. Did you ever actually exchange words with him at all? No. The closest I got was to his wife, Mo, who is lovely. Um, she declined speaking for a book, but uh, wrote me a really nice note over DM. Um, but him himself, no. I will say as a kid, I, I met him several times, but... Uh, since then, no. The closest I got was probably the Hall of Fame last year uh, when Inside the NBA got inducted. I went there, and it was just still a ton of people at a time when COVID was still not great. I wrote a book about the '90s Dallas Cowboys, and I couldn't get I couldn't get Michael Irvin, Emmett Smith, or Trey Aikman, but Michael Irvin was being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame while I was working on it. And I went to the induction ceremony and I ended up getting him in a scrum. So I asked like three questions and then I broke into his Hall of Fame party. And and actually that was that was gold because I witnessed everything at his Hall of Fame party, his private party. I just broke into the tent. But it's like by being able to ask him three questions, I was able to say, when people said, did you, did you talk to Mike Irvin? Yeah, well, I did talk to Mike Irvin. Let's say you were at the uh, induction for, uh, you know, inside the NBA and you got Barkley, you got to ask him three questions. Would that have made a difference, do you think, in perception or in anything or no? Possibly. Um, I know if I did have a chance, I would really just want to hear him talk about 
his family upbringing in Leeds probably the absolute most because his mother, Charcy, grandmother, Johnny May, were really these two salt of the earth, hardworking women at a time when uh, the Jim Crow South was still raging in Alabama. And uh, just hearing how he talks about his mother and his grandfather and how his father left them when he was only 13 months old. I want you to, to get into that part. How did he become Charles Barkley? So that would have been one of the questions. And if, I do think just getting more to, into his personal life, which is something he shields from a public so, so much, would have been another one. Like he rarely talks about his brother, Daryl, who passed away. Daryl struggled with addiction, um, struggled with a substance abuse his whole life to a point that he needed a heart transplant. And he eventually died of a big heart attack. And Charles, whenever he talks about addiction and substance abuse, points to Daryl, but it's always on a surface level. So for me, Jeff, my goal was to just really dig into his personal life and how he got to be who he is as much as possible. And yeah, I, I do think speaking to him would have helped. And I really did try to. Does it make us at all assholes? I do this too. In fact, I had, when I wrote a Roger Clemens biography, he had an older brother, uh, Randy, who was his hero, who became a drug addict. And that heavily influenced Roger Clemens' life. And Roger Clemens rarely talked about it. And like you with Daryl Barkley, I'm asking everyone <laughs> about Roger Clemens's brother, the one subject he doesn't want to talk about. So you're going around trying to learn as much as you can about his brother, a subject he really doesn't allude to that often, at least in, in depth. Um, <laughs> does that make us assholes at all? Like, I know we defend ourselves, but are we a bunch of assholes? Uh, sometimes, yes. Uh, and I will say this, I felt a lot more comfortable going into the topic of Daryl, just based on the fact that I got Daryl's daughter to actually speak for this book. She was actually the only Barkley who would speak to me for this book. And and she gave me um, just a, a real excellent sense of who her father was and how far he had come in his journey through all of his struggles. I did feel a lot more comfortable just getting into Daryl, knowing I had spoken to his daughter. So I am. Um, I spoke to one of Bo Jackson's sister-in-laws, and the quote she gave me was, fuck off, don't call me. How were you able, you were not able to get Barkley's relatives, but you got this one relative who was who very important, um, his niece. How did you get her to talk? I just found her over Facebook, and I had sent out a message just kind of explaining if, the whole deal. I was very upfront that I was so trying to get her uncle on board, and uh, she was attending the, uh, the University of Alabama at the time. Uh, yes, Charles, his niece, his role tied, uh, and and she was really gracious about it. She she started texting me, and then we had about an hour long conversation, and she was really open about her father, her uncle, uh, 
a whole family dynamic with uh, Charcy, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother, Johnny May. So it, it, I, I'm so thankful for her because she filled in a ton of gaps that way. And she never says to you, wait, you didn't talk to my uncle? Like none of that? It didn't come up. I, I right. imagine it has probably come up uh, within a family since then, but I have not heard anything about that. So, yeah, I'm thankful for her. <laughs> I mean, it's really a lesson. Like, um, you go to talk to someone and they never bring up, well, blah, blah, blah. It's not, I maybe it makes us sound duplicitous. I don't think it is. Though. Like, it's not our job to say, hey, just so you know, I just want to say in all these years, you were the first person to have a kid on his lap or her lap during a podcast. Oh, there's Teddy. I'm very into approach. I love approach and I love mm-hmm. the way people write books. And I always tell people who ask advice to me about how do you write a book? I always say, you don't really want to do it like I do it because I'm just a mess of notes and I live in a crack den of whatever Bo Jackson notes. It's not a healthy way. You, um, you decide you get a book deal. All right. I'm going to do a Charles Barkley biography. You have, uh, how long did you take? Two years, two and a half years. Uh, from the time I spoke with the first person in May of 2019 to a time I turned in a draft in February of 21, under two years. So what is your, all right, I have this deal. I'm going to write a book, Barkley. What do you do? Yeah, it was really tough to be honest with you because at the time I was still working the overnight shift at the Washington Post. So I would work from 9 p.m. up until 7 a.m. I would go to bed at 8 a.m. and wake up by about 2.30 and start uh, scheduling interviews and start interviewing people until about 5.30 or 6. And then I would pay dinner, spend time with my spouse, Betsy, and, and then I would uh, just get ready for work again. And I, I did this for almost two straight years, Jeff. And I did take one month off for book leave, and I was able to get out about 14 chapters in 28 days. Um, it was it, it oh. was just a nonstop cycle. August of 2020, I only did like five interviews that whole month. I went to the, the, uh, the family's beach house um, at the Jersey Shore and just locked myself in there and just ranked out almost half of it. So yeah, it was just uh, a matter of writing this thing on like Saturdays and Sundays when I wasn't at work and just trying to just kind of find that balance between life, work, and book. So it really was a challenging time, but it, it was also a little bit easier in some ways. And I Imagine you went through, through something similar to in terms of having this pandemic and which a lot of people had a ton of open time and want to just kind of talk about anything other than COVID and death. Um, so uh, having a subject like Charles Barkley helped out a lot. What I always say, you call someone during the pandemic. Are you calling to talk about, about Trump? No. Are you calling to talk about COVID? No. What do you want to talk about? I'm happy to talk. You know, it must have been had to be a heyday for telemarketers. <laughs> um, did you I had some some nerdy questions? Did you transcribe your own interviews? I did. And I transcribed them as they 
were actually happening too. So I was doing a live transcription and then I would go back if, if there were any really important moments in there. If I won't just get 100% right. Uh, uh, the large majority of these interviews were done by phone or Zoom. So I was able to do that in real time. A few I did do in person. I did get them sent out. Uh, like I interviewed a former Vice President Dan Quayle in person, and I just uh, sent that out. But partially I did it on my own. Wait, why did you interview Dan Quayle? <laughs> so uh, the former Vice President knew Charles very well. Uh, they both lived in Arizona at the same time. They both played golf with each other. Most importantly, Dan Quayle was the biggest backer of Charles owning for, for governor in Alabama on the Republican ticket, which was a real conversation at one point in time. And Dan Quayle and several others in Alabama really wanted Charles to run because there was public polling out there at the time saying if he did run, he'd probably win. Um, of course, his trunk driving um, incident upended all of that. But uh, yeah, I went to Manhattan and at Dan Quayle for a half hour. Here's a, a kind of soups and nutsy question. I always thought, and I still think, Barkley would be a great political candidate. And I think so because it's all out there. There's nothing gotcha about him. There's no gotchas. Like everything is out there. He did so much shit. He owned it. He talked about it. Did he ever really consider running for office? I do think it was a real possibility at one point. And if everything is out there, I'm not 100% sure, but I do think that all of his very public stuff has been covered for years and years. But I did think it really came down to, Jeff, how many other people have as good of a life as Charles Barkley does right now. I mean, he just he paid extremely well to talk and joke about basketball. He's so good at what he does. He's in Subway and Capital One ads. I mean, why would you trade that for being in politics? And, and he said that too. He's like, my life is too damn good. I get paid too much damn money to be <laughs> governor. So I do think it, while it was a real possibility at one point, he understood that he's got a great thing going. Yeah, that's very good. Well, yeah, one thing I've been thinking about with your book and my book coming out simultaneously, if you just think about it on a surface level, you would think you would have the advantage here, which is Barkley, man. He's a huge figure. Everyone knows about Charles Barkley. He gets millions of viewers every week. He's in the spotlight, blah, blah, blah. Bo Jackson has basically vanished since the year 1994. We never see him. And I think for me, what worked beautifully was the mystique of Bo Jackson, right? The mystique of it all, what he could have been. There's no mystique with Barkley. Not really, because we know who he is. And I wonder, like, is that a strength, writing a book about someone who is so public? Or is, or is there any part of that that is actually a hindrance? It's a great question. And I do think some of the... Uh, the history and the mystique uh, surrounding Bo is what made it just an awesome read. It's great, Jeff. But I would say in Charles' his case, yeah, we do know so much 
about him. And, and part of that can be a hindrance, but for, for as much as we do know about him, just on a general level, there are other generations of fans who have only seen him on TNT have only known him as being a broadcaster. I mean, he's been on TNT now longer than he was actually playing in the NBA, which is wild to me. And for anyone who only sees YouTube reels of Charles on TNT, they have no idea how good of a rebounder he was, how he was this amazing dunker. And so for me, for his playing days, it was about reminding people who this guy actually was. And for the other stuff, too, I really did, did want to dig into some of these other side stories, whether it be um, him accidentally spitting on the eight-year-old girl in New Jersey or the, or the role he played for the um uh, Olympics bombing victim in 96 or when he went to SNL for the first time and talking to the stuntman who was in that Barney outfit when he played on one-on-one. It was all about just finding little side adventures and side stories to stuff you might know about, but I really did just want to give as much depth as possible. And another example is actually interviewing a cop who pulled him over for his drunk driving incident in Arizona, in which uh, Charles famously said that he uh, was uh, on his way, way to actually get oral sex so like I, I i just want you to flesh out these stories of this legend even more jeff how did you find the cop <laughs> uh so i was able to track down the police report itself it, it's it's an old public document we had to wait about maybe two months to actually get it back but once we finally got it back uh i was able to find his name in Lexus Nexus, and he is actually involved in a church ministry now. I was able to actually find his email address, and he's like, how did you find me? I'm like, I've got my ways. Did you say, I'm Timothy Bell, motherfucker? Did you say that? <laughs> uh, if, out that last word, yes, yeah. I did. <laughs> like, I'm Timothy Bell. Hi, <laughs> how's it going? Uh, but he was great, and that officer that night was, was actually doing a ride along with his daughter. So his daughter was actually in a car once he uh, arrested Charles Barkley, which is kind of this lost detail in everything. In my Bo Jackson book, I wrote about him having a, a fiance and kind of another fiance at the same time. And it was stuff no one knew about. And I get the sense, I've been told Bo's wife was pretty upset about this being in the book. And I get that. I 100% get that. Like Barkley, he's just so open about this stuff that you reporting on it and getting the nitty gritty details, which is insanely cool, isn't going to cause him to go, oh, this asshole, blah, 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 blah. Like, I think actually, if anything, he'd probably respect the effort that you put in. I hope so, yeah. Because uh, that stuff has been out there for an extended period of time but but 
it has been buried in the fact that it just it's harder to get these uh public documents from 15 20 years back and i do think just being able to crack down the report hit that line in there about actually getting a blowjob it does add a little bit of layers to a drunk driving incident that if you recall he actually got sidelined from turner for an extended period of time for that and there was real doubt if he could actually rebound from that because it was also around the same time his brother died it was also the same time his mother died too so it was a real rough stretch for charles and i do think that incident which we all kind of joke about now just kind of highlights how tough it was back then isn't it also funny like people say to me like they ask you know promoting a book the john rocker story comes up every now and then right and it all seems so quaint compared to the things people get away with in 2022 you know what i mean like Charles Barkley was pulled over, blah, blah, blah. He was going to whatever, blah, blah, blah. John Rocker called black guy a fat monkey. Like all those things that seem so hyper horrible just seem almost quaint now by comparison. Do you know what I mean? I totally agree. And like in Charles' case, when uh, Operation Desert Storm was going on, he wore the hat to all sort of weekend that said, fuck Iraq. I mean, if think about if any athlete did that during the administration of George W. Bush, I mean, it would have gone just totally nuts. And you forget about small moments like that. You forget about how he calls Philadelphia a racist city because he was dating a white woman at the time and they would call her N word lover. Like, you forget about all of horrible stuff he went through because you see him so happy on screen and he just kind of brushes it off but if anyone else that would stay with them for so so long i do think it gets credit to him that he's lived not just this one big life but enough lives for three or four people it seems like oh man i think he is a truly remarkable american figure an iconic figure i think he's on the short list Truly on the short list with Dolly Parton, Snoop Dogg, Shaq of people who cross all who my mom would know, who my kid would know and would want to be hugged by all of, you know, like he somehow actually, how do you explain that? He truly has become this cuddly American figure. He has. And I keep saying this, but he's almost like a crazy uncle who says all of this shit and keeps getting away with it. Don't get me wrong. I admire Charles, but he says a lot of things that are just totally wrong, whether it be on basketball or social issues. And you do keep coming back to him, I think, Jeff, because there is this understanding between him and the public. But one, he's totally honest at all times. I know it's getting rehashed now with uh, him talking about the falling out between him and MJ, but he's totally honest at all times. And two, for the vast majority of what he says and does, he does come from this place of love instead of hate. And I do think that's kind of what has helped him become so Teflon. 
It is kind of funny how you say that. I'm good friends with uh, Seth Davis, who I used to work with at SI. Yeah. And they've really moved over guys to make sure that Charles and Kenny are doing college basketball. Mm-hmm. And Charles Barkley does not know shit about modern college basketball, but he's entertaining. He I mean, it's yeah. just ridiculous. I don't even know how much he knows about modern NBA half the time. Like he says stuff and you're like, did you watch the game like at all? But charm wins out, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was such a landmark deal. Just having TNT and CBS partner up and a big part of that was having Charles Barkley on there for weeks on end, just being himself and and not knowing 98% of the players or teams in there. But if that whole deal hinged on Charles Barkley. I do want to say, I'll just make this point. Like um, Seth has never complained about this to me. He's a wonderful guy. He wouldn't complain about it. That guy knows everything about college basketball there is to know. Well, yeah, we're just going to go with the entertaining guy when like that guy can name the roster of Gonzaga. You know, it's just like, I guess it speaks to the modern power of celebrity to a certain degree. It definitely does. And I interviewed Gar Kellogg about this too. And he was very open and saying that he has been helped by having Charles on set just because Gar Kellogg is a professional, which is very straight place. And he told me just having Charles Ernie, Kenny there has helped boosted him up and in turn just made him a better broadcaster, even though Charles knows just like zero about college. Let me ask you one more question about the book. I guess it's about reporting in general more. How do you handle rejection? How do you handle F you, I'm not talking? How do you handle the hangups? How do you handle people saying, well, did you talk to Charles? No, I can't talk to you. You know, how do you handle those moments? To be honest, I've been getting rejected uh, in a lot of places my whole life and <laughs> career, Jeff. So, like, that felt okay to me. Like, when I pitched this book out to about 26 publishers, 24 said no. And, like, wow. I, yeah, and I understood that on some level. Like, I'm, I'm not a beat guy, and it's my first book. So, I, I understand that on some level, but... When I got the deal from Hanover Square Press, I was able to just reach out to people like, here's my goal. And when they said no, I can be a persistent person, Jeff. So like I I would keep following up just to make sure. And after every hundred people I would interview, I would actually go back to them. Like I am now at over 200 interviews here are some of the people you know and for some of them it did work because it showed them that i was really serious i just would not take no i've always been bad about taking no overall like i've been hearing that for an extended period of time so i just did my deal yeah before we continue with two writers slinging yang a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman i'm here with my wife Catherine, who's celebrating her birthday how's it going so far Nah, just okay. Just okay? It was definitely cool having lunch with the Obamas, and I always wanted a pony, so I can check that off my bucket list. And the red Porsche is special. Leather seats, surround sound. You did good. Just good? I guess we're having this discussion. The Obamas, the pony, the Porsche, it was all thoughtful. But what I really wanted was a throwback Boston Breakers sweatshirt from RoyalRetros.com, where I shop for all my classic sports goods. Why are you looking at me that way? No way. Look what's in the bag. My own Boston Breakers sweatshirt? 
Does this mean I can cancel the flight to Monaco? Uh, no. I do feel like this business teaches you, I don't know if it thickens your skin, but it teaches you how to deal with rejection and to walk through rejection and to just endure rejection. Teddy, however, is really struggling with the rejection. <laughs> he is struggling right now. What's going on, buddy? Huh? I do want to tell people, I'm not going to cut this out because I love this. Teddy, Teddy is on his dad's lap right now, holding on for dear life, begging for this podcast to end. But he's being a good a good sport, and I dig that. He's such a good sport. He's done uh, TV appearances in Phoenix. He just did something on uh, CBS Mornings. Uh, so he's he's doing great so far. Yeah, almost bedtime, pal. Yeah. Does rejection offend you? Does it even bother you? No, that's a lie. It does, yeah. But um, I will say this. Instead of stewing on it for a while, I'd like to just use it for what I call has been a positive small chip on my shoulder when the place is tell me no or uh yeah so I've always tried to channel that into something positive instead because I learned a long time ago that you just can't hold on to the negativity and the disappointment you just have to keep going let me see a final thing I wrote about a guy Bo Jackson who grew up with a stutter and sort of had to fight through that and whatever came with it. I had recently on my podcast, a writer named David Ritz, who's a very, very well-known ghostwriter, who sort of talked about how a stutter impacted him and his writing and almost his drive. You stutter, how does that affect you as a journalist? What are the challenges, the obstacles, or do you even view it that way? I always found it to be fun in some ways because I would just kind of, uh, attack what other people call a flaw head on. And I always love talking to people. Um, my first job was uh, actually being a beach badge checker at the Jersey Shore. So I would go up, up to strangers at the beach and charge them like five or 10 bucks for a beach badge. And it forced me to honestly just go up and talk to people and it just put all of the other shit oh. aside and do it. And honestly, from that point on, Jeff, I just stopped caring. <laughs> I, I, I just really stopped caring what other people thought or if I, or if they were actually judging me or uh, approaching me with these perceptions before they ever got to know me or my background like so for me yeah like it, it can be a daily challenge but i really don't see it as being as bad as i once thought it was like it in school it it could be tough like it, in middle school especially Middle school kids are assholes, man. Um, Correct. <laughs> uh, but, like, honestly, it, it hasn't affected me too, too much. And if anything, I I think it's been just cool to, to address it every day by talking to people like Shaq and Conan O'Brien and Charles's first girlfriend is first basketball coach like uh 
a former vice president and senators. Like for me, I this kind of enjoyed being in that moment and being able to talk with people I otherwise would never speak with. So for me, that's more important than an impediment. Final, final question. You're 36 years old. You have to play a almost 60-year-old Charles Barkley in a game of one-on-one. He's 60 years old. You're in your mid-30s. Could you keep it close? No. No. I was, honestly, I was short, fat, Italian-American kid in Texas who just loved basketball. So, but I could do one thing, and that's rebound. And I got that from Charles Barkley, who used – his big butt a lot of times actually get these balls. So um, could I keep it close? No. Could I score one or two? Yeah, probably. If we're playing 15, it'd be like a 15 to one route, Barkley. He thinks he can beat Obama now. And Obama's not bad. I mean, I mean uh, but he has said that he's old and fat, but he can still beat a lot of people. And he could definitely beat me probably. Well, listen, man. You have made it through with Teddy on your lap the whole time. Oh, the book is great. I feel like I have two sibling books during this whole experience. One is yours, obviously. And the other was Jim Thorpe because by David Marinus, both Washington Post guys because of the bow whole athlete thing. And um, they're both freaking great. And this book is great. And you should feel amazing about it. It's a real accomplishment. And um, I'm excited for your next book on Kenny Smith. I think it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I Yeah, no, it, as someone who grew up in Houston and saw him win, I do a Kenny Smith book. I I'd probably do a Shaq book first, but yeah. Uh, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, congrats on the book. Thank you so much again, Jeff. Appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Timothy Bella and Teddy, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Bella and order Barkley, a biography, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the fantastic MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.